милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions anywhere between $5 to $25. And if you like this podcast and you listen to it regularly, please consider becoming a patron. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org. Find that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner of the website and click on it and join the table of ranks. So this week's episode is part of this short series I'm running at Reese called The Spectre in the Present, Trauma and Its Legacies in Eurasia. This is the second event uh, between memory and history in Ukraine. And basically this series is to look at issues of historical memory, the politics of history, and trauma in Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union. And Ukraine is a perfect place to deal with this because of the politicization of historical memory and the role of that memory, uh, particularly around the war that Russia is committing against Ukraine at this very moment. So this episode is looking at this issue of history and memory and some of the challenges of narrating a history of Ukraine that incorporates its various multi-ethnic different historical experiences. So uh, I hope you really enjoy this episode. Um, it's a fascinating interview. So the first guest is Victoria Smolkina, who is an associate professor of history at Wesleyan University. Her research focuses on religion and atheism and cosmism in Russia, Ukraine, and the Soviet Union. She's the author of A Sacred Space is Never Empty, a history of Soviet atheism published by Princeton University Press. You can check out my interview with Victoria from a few years ago on this book. She's currently hard at work at two on two projects. The first is, and this first one will be discussed in this interview, The Wall of Memory, Ukraine and, Imp and the Impossibility of History. Uh, Victoria's second project is The World of Tomorrow, Communism, Cosmism, and the Fate of Utopia. My second guest is Georgi Kasyanov. He runs the Laboratory of International Memory Studies at the Mary Curie Sklodowska University in Lublin, Poland. He's the author, co-author, and co-editor of more than 20 books on the history of Ukraine in the 19th and 20th centuries. His most recent book is Memory Crash, Politics of History in and Around Ukraine, the 1980s to 2010s, published by Central European University Press. So here's Victoria Smolkina and Georgi Kasyanov. So today's event, as I said, is concerned with issues of historical narrative and historical memory in Ukraine, and also the challenge of writing that as historians. So I thought we'd start off by having each of you talk about your respective work on these very issues. Uh, let's start with you, Georgi. Yeah, just thank you. I, I started to work on the topic uh, approximately 15 years. Uh, it was a, well, it was a, just an occasion. I just, I started to uh, to write about historiography, about academic writing. 
And then uh, there was an occasion that I was involved into the analysis of textbooks on history. And then I, I was really pressed with a, a kind of unanimity of, uh, of textbooks. I understand it's a standard uh, rating, but I just expected that since we have that time, we had uh, about three books for every grade. So there will be kind of, uh, well, variety of them. But nevertheless, it was all the same everywhere. And then I just uh, started to think about what is the reason for this and uh, how it happens. And then after that, I, I just, I, I started to learn, study, I started to study on Holodomor, and not Holodomor itself, but uh, politics, uh, history, and Holodomor. And then I, I just got poisoned with this topic. And, uh, so I'm still, uh, I eat and uh, I'm really, I'm really uh, ill with this topic and uh, I'm trying to, to deal with this somehow. And to do this, I am using the well, psychoanalysis method. So I write in books and then uh, it somehow heals me. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, considering that this series is about trauma, I apologize for contributing to your trauma. Um, but I, I do have to ask, like, you, you, you use this language of poison and illness. And I do know from reading the, you know, the introduction of your book, it, it came with a lot of poison. <laughs> uh, talk, talk about, well, like, why, why do you put it in those terms that you're, you're, it's poison and you're ill of it? Well, generally, it's uh, well. It, it happens when the society is overfed with history and memory, and uh, then it is uh, undigestible. So you have to do something with this. And uh, it is uh, the diagnosis uh, was done uh, a long time ago when Churchill uh, spoke about uh, Balkans, and he said that Balkans produce more history than can digest. And now this is diagnosis for the whole world, for the globe. So the whole world, so the whole globe produces too much history and too much memory and unable to digest it. And it is really, uh, well, we, we really speak in terms of trauma. And the, the most recent experience, reading the discussion on 1619 in the U.S. and uh, the reflections and reactions on the article of head of Association of American Historians uh, and a hate speech and attacks on him. So I'm now I'm really, I'm really glad that the uh, U.S. is also there uh, in, in power community of mad people who just, uh, well, allow history and past and past somehow influence and influence to a great extent the contemporaries. Well, I, I, I must say I, I don't appreciate the welcoming, but it is what it is. I want to actually come back to this issue about our times in memory and history, because I think you pointed out something really important. But let's turn to you, Victoria. What is, what is your story in terms of your, your work and, and how it relates to these issues? I would start with the fact that I'm trained um, as a Russianist and a Soviet historian. Um, at the same time, I'm from Ukraine. And what I found when I was writing my book, very much within the kind of Russian, Soviet, um, I would say methodologically imperial framework, was that uh, when I would do my research in Ukraine, um, the narratives would fall apart, right? The things that kind of work to explain 
the situation, um, the material in Russia did not work. Um, those narratives did not work to explain the situation in Ukraine. And that was, you know, methodologically where I began to focus my attention on Ukraine as this space. Um, and I think I, I really like Georgi's um, uh, description of kind of undigestible, um, because I think in Ukraine, these these things are, are particularly undigested. Um, so, yeah, so my work, you know, I look at history, I look at memory, but I really look at ideology as a mechanism to try to mold these things, right, to mold these narratives into digestible forms. Um, and and that is what led me to a micro history where I see, you know, these narratives, um, big historical narratives, big memory narratives, um, collective memory narratives running into walls. And in this case, the microhistory that I'm working on is a, is a literal wall where multiple parties are trying to represent different memories, different understandings of history on the same space. And you see it kind of evolve into a palimpsest where, you know, one narrative is, is uh, depicted, then its meaning changes, it's destroyed, and so on. So it's a microhistory that I think really speaks to a bigger um, set of questions about Ukraine in particular. Mm -hmm. And it certainly issues of representation, who's represented and who tells the story of those representations. I mean, both of you have pointed to to two big issues in, in, in your language, the issue of walls, the issue of undigestible history or undigestible memory. And the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, uh, has put the questions of history and memory on the political agenda, as, as Georgi pointed out, for it even beyond that. But... <clears throat> There has been a concerted effort in the last 30 years to rewrite, rethink, to memorialize, to commemorate, and in some cases, in almost all cases, one could say instrumentalize the past. So I, I want to ask both of you, and let's start with you, Victoria, since you mentioned this issue of hitting walls, you know, what are some of the challenges you ran into, you know, given how you were trained and then these walls that you mentioned in Ukraine? Do you have any examples or or, you know, explain further what you mean by that. Um, this is something I've been really grappling with um, in, over the course of the last eight months in particular, um, as I tried to reconcile my um, professional training with my lived experience, both past and present. And I think the biggest challenge in working on Ukraine um, Ukrainian history is that uh, historiography, Western historiography, is fundamentally structured around the state as an organizing principle. That when you look at even the way that history um, fields are divided, right? Early modern history is the history of the rise of the state, right? Modern history is the history of the coming to being, right? Of, of the state as a as a kind of autonomous agent, right? Um, and Ukraine does not, if you only consider history from a perspective of state power and, and, and the state as being the only thing or even the primary thing that gives coherence to a history, then Ukraine becomes very difficult to uh, metabolize into that infrastructure. So I think the main um, challenge for historians, as I see it, is to think about how using the state as our kind of organizing principle in modern European history 
has created a lot of blind spots to where we can um, assign and um, assign agency, understand meaning, right? Uh, consider a value and that we need to start really, you know, start removing those, those blinders because, um, because if we don't, then, then it really Ukraine makes no sense. I don't know if I, I really understand what you mean by it makes no sense. I think, you know, so you have this narrative uh, coming from Russia, for example, right? That, um, that Ukraine is, uh, you know, and here I'm kind of simplifying for the purposes of, of podcasting. Um, but, you know, that Ukraine is not a legitimate state and that it has no history because it has a history of statehood. Right. Um, now, from a historical perspective, um, you know, the current Russian state is exactly the same age, pretty much, as the current Ukrainians. Right. It is no older. Right. It has no deeper roots in that regard. But it has written a mythology, right, a historical mythology that traces itself back through, you know, the Soviet era, the imperial era, all the way back through Muscovy into Kiev, right? Ukraine has not, um, doesn't have that kind, has not yet produced that kind of hegemonic narrative. And I think um, it has produced multiple narratives, right? So there isn't yet a hegemonic one. And so if you kind of think about... Um, about sovereignty as a kind of as a, as a as as grounded in the state, then Ukraine doesn't make sense, right? Which is why people are always asking, you know, why? Like, what is its point? Why does it need to exist, right? And 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 it's because I think there's this question around like, what is it, right? And it, and is it a nation? Okay, well, if it's a nation, why are all these other people there that aren't you know, easily fitting into it, right? So, what kind of nation? So, I think you're, you you. In a way, Ukraine is the laboratory, the space where these questions that really are questions all states and all nations ask just to be worked out or have to be um, have are exposed as 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 the fictions in some way that they are. Right. So um, that's what I mean when I say that it makes sense, like it doesn't form a narrative that can be easily digested. I see. Thank you. Georgi, what about you? What are some of the challenges that you see in, in, in writing a history or narrating a history of Ukraine in the l larger region? Well, uh, there is a lot of challenges. Uh, there might be intellectual challenges or political or ethical, uh, particularly in the last seven months. So um, probably the major uh, ethical uh, challenge now is how to write balanced uh, Academic narrative when you have a uh, when you have your country uh, in this uh, condition, and uh, and you have to deal somehow with this and somehow to well to take part in in uh, resistance, uh, at least intellectual, and uh, but generally what Victoria said I like that Victoria mentioned uh, just picked up the the word uh, laboratory. Uh, it was about 14 years ago we have a, published a book about Ukraine but as a laboratory of transnational history. And this is the case that Ukraine uh, does not fit to classical national narrative because it's, uh, it, its history is truly transnational in many cases. It's a history of interaction with different cultures, different civilizations, etc., and different and, uh, mutual influences. Uh, interactions. So this is probably the basic challenge to Ukraine, how to write a kind of master narrative. 
which might somehow be, uh, well, follow the uh, just uh, conventional scenario of national mastery narrative, and at the same time includes into this narrative other nations, others, other ethnic groups, other cultures, other civilizations, etc., who are beyond uh, Ukrainian uh, ethnic uh, history. And this challenge, uh, well, that uh, I think that Ukraine still dealing with this challenge. And, uh, probably what happened, uh, what's happening now is also uh, one of the stages of dealing with this because uh, now we again see that uh, we see a certain part of community of historians who try to profess a purely ethnocentric narrative. Uh, and that it's uh, it's understandable under current conditions, and the same, at the same time, we see those historians who want to uh, to have some more balanced or some transnational uh, narrative. They also have reasons for this, and they also have a. It's also echoed in society when we discuss problem. Well, who speaks? Who's, what language? Who speaks in the front lines? And there is a lot of Russian language there, so. The next question is how it's uh, determined historically, et cetera, et cetera. So generally, uh, another another probably uh, serious challenge to Ukrainian history as a history of writing is that uh, it, it is extremely politicized now, of course, and it was extremely politicized. However, if I observe the development of Ukrainian history of writing in academic terms, I see that uh, by uh, by the time of uh, beginning of the war, and I would say that the war started in 2013, generally, I would say that Ukrainian history writing, historiography was a, I would say, complete historiography. We had all, uh, all modern trends and streams within our historiography. Of course, the mainstream was national master narrative, which is okay for the country which uh, just existed for 20, 25 years. But at the same time, we have uh, absolutely all, uh, everything which is related to modern and postmodern historiography, all these terms which happened in, in Europe uh, and in the world uh, in the last 50 years, they've happened in Ukraine in the last uh, 15 years. And uh, now we have a, fully developed uh, national historiography with all trends which are compatible with the world historiographical trends. But, you know, as you pointed out, there's always, you know, regardless of what history we're talking about, there's always this divide between what professional historians do and the the nuances and the intricacies of their histories that's a lot of some of their histories can have versus the master narrative or the hegemonic or popular idea of the narration of history, which, as you said, Georgi, is this national, um, ethno-national uh, narrative. Um, so, you know, in, in your work uh, on the, the politics, like, why are these questions, or can you talk about how these, these questions are so politicized in Ukraine and elsewhere uh, through the work that you've done? Well, let's say I... I as I mentioned at the very beginning, we had it's it's a global trend now, and uh, if you observe uh, well, Far East and uh, China and Japanese relations and uh, what's going on there, or Pakistani and uh, and uh, India, 
or other regions. I, I don't I know nothing about Latin America, but I, I can assure, I can bet that uh, they have almost the same there. So uh, it's everywhere and uh, probably global reason, the global cause for this is just uh, because we have a, now we're experiencing in the last 40, 30 years, we, we're experiencing a kind of global shift in identity, which is provoked shift and crisis of identity, which is provoked by this, first by the uh, uh, global wave of globalism, and then responses to globalism uh, um, from uh, different forms of nationalisms or even tribalisms. So, uh, and this global crisis of identity provokes a search for um, for some kind of uh, civic religion. And people decided that the best form of civic religion would be history and memory. And they started to rely upon this uh, form of consciousness. And then they instrumentalize it for different needs and for different ends starting from political and then uh, ending with, again ethical or religious or um or something which is related to outlook so i believe that globally the problem is a uh, caused by this uh initial spread of globalism uh also enhanced by the um, changes in informational technologies in digital technologies and in, uh, in ways of manipulating uh, public consciousness and group uh, behavior, uh, and by using uh, the most most advanced technologies uh, to influence uh, well minds and probably undermines people. Yeah, yeah, Victoria. I, this is like right where your you know your research has has focuses on is how how these ideas and ideologies are mobilized to create rituals and memories and practices. So I'm, I'm curious, what is your opinion of this seeming explosion of on the around the globe of this historical memory, memory politics? Yeah, it's a it's a huge question. And I was listening with great interest to Georgi's comments. And one of the things that came to mind as he was speaking is the situation is quite is paradoxical in many ways because this globalism, of course, has also been accompanied by massive migrations, right? And 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 massive population transfers for all sorts of different reasons, for economic reasons, for security reasons, for political reasons. And so just as this kind of globalism has created a world and 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 quote unquote, right, nations that are filled with different kinds of people for, for you know, as a result of these processes, um, these narratives, they're both um, more, they seem more necessary, but they are less adequate to the situation, right? So, so in a way, they're being mobilized against a current, right? They're being mobilized to, to kind of... Um, put together a coherence as the society begins to look different, right? And maybe to some eyes, incoherent. Um, so rather than come up with narratives that, that actually reflect the world as, as it's constituted, you know, there's a kind of effort to make it look like the thing that is familiar. 
And I think that's what's so, um, you know, so interesting about, you know, memory and history as something that goes together, right? Because memories are, you know, both of those are plural, right? There's, there is an a memory and a history. Um, but I think when you have um, competing memories of the same histories, it makes that project even more complicated. Um, you know, there's a there's a saying, you know, that history is written by the victors. But that's to me, it's 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 a little bit not. It's not really responding to the situation we have here, because really history is written by the survivors. And the survivors are oftentimes victims. And whether they are victims um, in emigration, right, in form of diasporas, right? So we have a lot of history writing that's happening among diasporas. In Ukraine, this is very prominent, but not only in Ukraine. Uh, or their survivors within that that have remained within the regime. And there, there are all sorts of different problems that come up, right? Because the people who have survived um, sometimes have been beneficiaries of the peop uh, of the the traumas that have been inflicted on the people who are no longer there. And so I think this kind of survivor, I think maybe this is why trauma is so interesting as a lens, because it's survivor narratives, um, not necessarily um, winner narratives. I, I really like the way you put that and turn that twist of that old adage of it's written by history is written by the victors. I think you're by pointing out it's actually written by survivors is, is really crucial. And this is a perfect segue to exactly one of the things you're working on right now, Victoria, with your new project. And that is how the you know, Soviets dealt with the issue of death. And one can say that, you know, all of this what, that we're talking about, history, memory, the politics of memory, we're really talking about the dead. You know, how do we represent the dead? How do we grapple with them? How do we remember them? How do we, you know, display them as heroes or victims, um, in, in lesser cases, perpetrators, um, you know, and what all of that death means for the survivors, then means for us, the living. So I, I like to... to have you talk a bit about the role of death and the thinking of your attempts to to write this micro using a micro history to write to to comment on larger historical questions around Ukraine? It's a great question. So I am mindful of not kind of going into the whole micro history itself, but also but speaking in a way that makes it um, clear uh, how the death element is being worked out. So. The, the microhistory is of a cemetery that was um, used by the Soviet project to represent Soviet, the Soviet way of death. And in this um, cemetery complex, there were buildings, there was a wall, there was a kind of um, landscape that were all supposed to speak to this vision of the new Soviet way of life by representing the Soviet way of death. Um, and what happens, so there's a kind of meta-narrative, and that meta-narrative happened to be put into operation in Ukraine for all sorts of interesting and kind of logistical administrative reasons. And so what you see is this meta-narrative of the Soviet way of death in general coming into uh, deep conflict with local memories of death in Kyiv. 
And when these um, images, these representations of death emerge, they're represented on this wall, there's a deep um, conflict about what, what death, which death matters in this context, because just as they're building this kind of Soviet ideological project, what hasn't been built is a memorial to Babi Yar. And so there's this kind of, to simplify it, there's a kind of one accusation is that they snuck in a memorial to Babi Yar through this wall, through this ideological project. And so when the party saw it, there was the wrong dead were represented, right? These were not heroic dead. And so there was a kind of, um, and then there was an effort, um, not even an effort, there was uh, the, the state basically destroyed these representations because they did not represent the Soviet death, um, Soviet dead in a way that accorded with um, the Soviet, the needs of the Soviet living, right, of those in power. So I think, you know, death is a really, death is a really um, challenging but important prism through which to look at this um, you know, community making, right? And the historical narratives that come into conflict with one another, right? Because on the one hand, this meta-narrative kind of works, they get all these resources. But on the other hand, the local narrative doesn't see the same things in, in that object, right? As, um, uh, that the state wants them to see. And, and, then, and, and so it's always ultimately a local story, right? History, both history and memory are always ultimately not meta-narratives. They are local um, stories that either do or do not um, have meaning for the people who engage with them. Georgi, what about, what about you in terms of this issue? I, I'd like to just have your comments and ruminations on this issue of death, because a lot of, as I said, a lot of the history politics or politics of memory revolves around what to do with the dead. Um, so do you have any comments along those lines? Well, I have a, uh, my own experience with the Holodomore uh, uh, construction of Holodomore memory, I mean, cultural memory. And, uh, of course, it's also... Uh, Connected to the issue of, uh, of the cult dead and a uh, commemoration of uh, of the victims of victims of uh, great famine, but uh, well, generally I think that uh, if you look at the at the public rituals in Ukraine, uh, there is a lot of these kind of rituals in Ukrainian history. Even if we take into account the most recent history. Uh, from 2014, uh, you probably remember, probably you saw this at uh, the um, the the, uh, the memorial made by by local people, uh, memorial of Heavenly Hundred uh, on this uh, on the just uh, next days after the, everything happened, and uh, that's that was a kind of it's very interesting. It's uh, how people react and how why they do this and why they do this that way. And I think that it's not connected. Uh, it somehow might be connected to Russian uh, to the uh, Soviet tradition, uh, the Soviet's uh, invented tradition. Uh, but at the same time, it has a much deeper root, deeper roots in uh, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian religious culture and Ukrainian religious rituals. So uh, if uh, if someone goes in, into this. They probably should uh, so uh, turn attention to 
people's culture to local cultures to folk culture and uh, look for for how it how it transferred into official regions and um, you know all the more reasons might be the case but generally yes you mentioned at the beginning that the history of Ukraine in 20th century was extremely traumatic I, I remember that I, I uh, finished my book on history of Ukraine diligence in the 30s I, I just found that uh, political trials started in Ukraine in 2020, and then in 21, 22, 24, 28. So that was a just a chain of uh, of uh, something which uh, is uh, generally uh, described as a political regressions. And then there was a great famine, and then there was a second world war, and then there were before that mass regressions, then another famine. And uh, another oppressions, so, so the 20th century looks like this. The only problem with this is that there was a lot of many other things in, in Ukraine, in the Soviet Ukraine, um, not, not just related to oppressions and kibbutz, uh, uh, but also Ukraine became a uh, uh, industrial society, urban industrial society. I don't discuss here the price for this, but uh, it is the fact. And then uh, Ukraine became a space uh, a territory that is what uh, we, we uh, produced the uh, space shuttles, etc. So, um, unfortunately, if I, as I look at uh, the, the most, uh, the, the newest uh, textbooks, which were published after 2018, Unfortunately, we still have there this cult of victimhood and uh, the concentration on on uh, what happened uh, during Holodomor, during repressions, so it's black hole, particularly Soviet times, and also pre-Soviet times also. And this is also, we see the um, uh, Ukrainian literature course in the schools, which is also about uh, much more depressed things uh, uh, this combination uh, brings a uh, outlook which uh, might be uh, good for for the future however uh, what I also learned in the last uh, seven months is that uh, fortunately this did not affect uh, the vitality of Ukrainians and uh, uh, probably because textbooks are bad uh, probably because the low quality of teaching of this, but nevertheless, so Ukrainians still uh, bear this uh, spirit of uh, resistance, and they are able to mobilize, particularly horizontally mobilize, mobilize. So this this is uh, something which really contradicts the the history, the official history of Ukraine uh, and the didactical history. And this is uh, one of the lessons I've learned in the last uh, seven months. When Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine last February, the whole world seemed to stop. But what we tend to forget is that for many, the world had already stopped. Eight years before, when Russia annexed Crimea, and invaded Donbass. When it started, I was 14 years old. We called a taxi and we went to UN 
A lot of people were kidnapped, killed. That was the moment that I realized I cannot do this anymore. It's just the feeling, I can't, I can't. I have to do something. In the second season of Voices of Ukraine, a podcast about lives upended by Russia's war from Columbia University's Harriman Institute for Russian, Eurasian, and East European Studies, we're going to look back. You try to escape from something, and it just find you and find you again and again. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, the Harriman Institute's media manager. Season two is coming in mid-November, with episodes dropping monthly. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I want to I want to ask about this issue of um, you know as as I said as you said uh, you know Victoria has alluded to it too this issue of trauma um, and and the fact that you know when we look at the tw- the twentieth century in in this region is a, a series of successive traumas um, and I, I'm I'm curious to what you both think about what are the implications of now because all of this issue victimhood uh, along with trauma. And, and here I'm speaking not just about Ukraine. I'm speaking even also about the United States. The the discourse of victimhood is is a form of political legitimacy, right? It's a form. To, it's a way to legitimize a nation's legitimacy. Um, you know, we were targeted because we are X. Therefore, we you know trace our history to that identity. And I'm curious what you both think about the you know what are some of the implications of basing a national identity or a national history in victimhood and in trauma, and what does that do or potentially do for society's understanding of itself? Uh, since you, why don't we start with you, Georgi? Uh, well, but we had, the, as I already mentioned, had the kind of central the identity building project uh, based on victimhood. It's called the war, and uh, it was to a great extent successful if we uh, discuss it in terms of uh, political engineering and uh, and uh, introduction this at uh, the level of society. Uh, now we have a sociological polls which uh, say that more than 80% of Ukrainians recognize a uh, Holodomor and genocide. And nobody asked them what it, what is genocide, but they, uh, they recognize this as genocide. So it looks like a successful project. Uh, well, it was uh, uh, probably well. It was center uh, center project for uh, Ukrainian uh, national uh, identity building in two thousands, and uh, yes, it was also uh, closely related to the promotion of the image of Ukraine in the world. And, uh, and then I, I criticized this for uh, this tendency because I said that uh, victimhood is, of course, is a natural part of uh, uh, national identity and uh, sacrifice uh, might be a, well, natural part of identity, but something should be, uh, there should be something else. There were attempts to promote a uh, Ukrainian revolution of 1720, but uh, since revolution was not successful, so it's it's a certain extent failed, 
But then after 2014, I see that there was a real shift in, um, in emphasis uh, from victimhood to heroic uh, sacrifice. And this is about Ukrainian insurgent army. And uh, that, so the, this army didn't have support from outside. So uh, they fought for more than a decade. And uh, so they were heroes, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, it is a gay uh, image. Well, quite, uh, let's say, quite washed image because I did some, some other things, not just fought against uh, Soviets and Nazis. But uh, that was a very important shift also to heroes, to, uh, to the cult of heroes and cult of heroic sacrifice. And also Kazakhdom, uh, the kind of renewal, uh, revival of Kazakhs' uh, heroic myth. And that has to a certain extent balanced this uh, victimhood uh, strategy. Fortunately, and uh, now we see that uh, that also worked to a certain extent for mobilization, for military action, and for uh, for resistance. What about you, Victoria? What did this question of of trauma and what are the implications of it, like history based in victimhood? I think you know victimhood as a form of legitimacy. I think you you make a really strong point there. Um, and it, I think it works really well as an internal project when you are trying to um, position yourself uh, or formulate a grievance against your own kind of regime, your you know, or your former colonial oppressor, right? But in a way, it's a kind of internal conversation. Um, but as Georgi said, it's not a very um, helpful mobilizing force if you're going to go fight a war. And so, you know, I think these things, um, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, there is this kind of victimhood of Ukrainians, absolutely, as, as a, you know, as a kind of history of oppression, history of trauma. But there's also, uh, you know, a different national myth, which he already pointed to, but it's kind of more, I think, more general, which is, a, you know, Ukrainians cannot be subjugated, right? That is the, that if there is something that you kind of look for historically that gives this region coherence is the kind of persistent effort to subjugate the people of this region and the persistent resistance and ultimately failure to do so um, completely. And so there's this kind of Ukrainians love freedom, right? That's the other, that's the other, um, the other, the heroic myth. And I do think, you know, when you're looking for heroes, you know, it, it makes sense to look for heroes. You, know, you, you, you have certain things available to you. You have historical examples, Upa being one of them. Um, and it makes sense within a certain kind of ethno-nationalist framework. Um, you know, you can look for, you know, almost mythological heroes, you know, like Cossackdom as, um, as this kind of free space, right? A free kind of militarized um, um, sovereign space. Um, so it's a question of, you know, but what, which heroes are going to do the most work for you for the future, right? I think we have a, a kind of set of heroes that have existed thus far, but I, I do see Ukraine increasingly turning to, um, not away from trauma, but turning to embrace other narratives that are not only about the trauma of the Ukrainian nation and Ukrainian people, but looking at, you know, in a way kind of responding maybe indirectly to Russia's narrative about Ukraine, 
because Russia casts Ukraine as anti-Russia, right? That's, that's what it says, you know, Ukraine, the Ukrainian project is anti-Russia. And um, that for them kind of says everything you need to know, right? They're anti-Russia. But if you look at it from a different perspective, right, <laughs> Ukraine as anti-Russia is a pretty good project, right? You can kind of say, well, OK, th this is an anti-authoritarian, anti-autocratic, you know, they're not going to be governed, you know, and, and, and subjugated in this way. Um, so you can incorporate those narratives, um, you know, to your own ends. And I think then you have a, something more robust that you can take with you into into a political um you know, into a new political identity going forward. The thing, though, it seems, and, and this is something that you, Victoria, alluded to several minutes ago about the conversation about the, the memory wall and Bobby Yar, and that is, you know, these places, these countries are multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional, right? Ethno-nationalist history that elevates heroes or victims or whoever, it it it. It creates who is an inside and who is outside the nation. And so, you know, Victoria, in this case, based on what you just said, if you could add also the tensions that this, this potentially creates for this, you know, writing an ethno-national history that, as I completely agree, is incredibly effective in mobilizing against invaders versus a pluralistic one, which is more, I would say, more conducive to the historical condition we live in today um, and points more towards a future. <laughs> uh, so, th you know, this, this issue of like, we're not dealing with homogenous populations here, with, with, with you know, homogenous ethno-histories. Well, I, I think the ethno-nationalist narratives aren't particularly effective to mobilizing um, the, the, the population. I mean, I think Georgi kind of made a very interesting point when you said which languages you know are spoken at the front um and you know it's a plural right and not a singular so in a way you know you what you're seeing is a you know there's a kind of now almost a cliche that the war has created a kind of coherent nation that isn't just ethno-nationalist but um you know has kind of enlarged who is included and who, um, you know, if you fight for the nation, then how can you not, how can you be excluded from the nation? So, so I, I don't actually think the ethno-nationalist narrative is adequate. Um, um, and really the, it's the pluralistic narrative that is necessary. And in a way, and this is maybe a dark way of seeing it, but you know, you, you can kind of see the overlapping, you know, there's competing victimhood, right. And, and, and and um overlapping traumas right um but you know you can also build bridges across those victimhoods um and and you know it, it there doesn't have to be a hierarchy of victims um in a space where there are so many victims so 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 you know there, you have these situations where um people need to recognize their own histories right in in their in the narrative um and the more pluralistic and inclusive and and reflective of the people's actual past that narrative is the more they're going to identify and and move forward with it you are you Georgi, you mentioned earlier that uh the the textbooks were pretty uniform 
So how did they deal, or even the memory politics of Ukraine, how, how does Ukraine's multi-ethnicity and multi-linguist and, and, and confessional populations figure into those narratives? Well, generally, uh, if we if we are discussing a textbooks, so then uh, um, I would say that until the end of the thousands, um, there was a mono-ethnic uh, or ethnic-centered narrative uh, which dominated the curriculum. Uh, however, uh, well, there was a lot of efforts uh, in in also in thousands. Uh, done by uh, different non-governmental organizations and experts. Uh, and of course, those who were corrupted by the West and uh, by the uh, by uh, well, the ideas of multiculturalism, etc. Uh, so um, in 2010s, there was some kind of, I, I, I observed a kind of shift in, in attitudes and Ukrainian uh, textbooks Moved from ethnic-centered narrative, uh, Ukrainian ethnocentric-centered narrative, to um, more to, into the inclusion of other ethnic groups, uh, with pointing out these groups. And then it is interesting that uh, then somehow paradoxically uh, the war with Russia helped with this trend. Enhanced this trend. For instance, I can give you a, an example with the um, Crimean Tatars. It is exactly after 2014, after annexation of Crimea, that Crimean Tatars were uh, certainly either separated in terms of uh, committing a um, separate uh, chapters to them uh, after 44 or for the sections after 44. And at the same time, uh, there was a kind of shift in the reconsidering of, uh, of the history of Caribbean Tatars in previous years, because in previous periods, because uh, in the thousands, I spoke to teachers of history and they told me that when they have Caribbean Tatars in the classroom, they have some problems uh, because uh, if you take the textbooks, uh, textbook from eighth, eighth grade, and then it's about uh, 17th century. Then Crimean Tatars uh, present, were presented there in a not very attractive manner. So um, now it is uh, somehow uh, well, edited. And uh, Crimean Tatars included into Ukrainian national narrative, which in turn also not just Ukrainian ethnic narrative, but also Ukrainian civic narrative. So it's a shift towards uh, Ukrainian uh, civic nationalism. And uh, another change which occurred after exactly after 2014 is inclusion, much more inclusion of Holocaust into the into textbooks history. Uh, this uh, makes uh, a real turn in perceptions, uh, in perceptions of the past through textbooks. Which I believe it's it's really great. It's, it's positive. Unfortunately, it occurred only after Ukraine lost uh, part of its territories and uh, during the war. You know, given given Ukraine's uh, history, um, and and you know these there's been recent calls 
to for the history of Ukraine and Russia and a lot of many histories in our region to to be decolonized. And the question of what that means is a matter of debate. But, you know, decolonization, if we look at, the, say, the third world, we can see that this is history writing is one of the methods in which to decolonize a society. So my kind of, I'm kind of curious what each of you think of what does, when it comes to Ukraine, what does one do with Russia? I, I don't expect you both to have answers, <laughs> but I, I'm curious as to just thoughts, like just to begin to even like think about where does Russia fit in all of this? Uh, Victoria? I love this question. You know, because that's that's I think that's the big question for those of us, certainly um, who were trained as, quote unquote, Russianists. Right. But that, of course, included under it that entire region of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union. Um, but we're not trained specifically as historians of Ukraine. Right. Who um, who have a different historiographical tradition. Um, I think the main the main, um, I don't want to say revelation because that makes it just sound so bad. It makes us so bad. But, but, but I think the main, the main um, takeaway, let's say, going forward uh, for me is that um, not that this idea that power um and not only power, but meaning emanate from Moscow is fundamentally false, right? So this, this is, you know, the idea of studying these imperial histories, right, is that ultimately the power and the meaning, right, they get to set the terms and everyone else is either accommodating or resisting, right, or trying to figure out some way to live within terms that were set externally. Um. But it turns out that, in fact, um, despite these projected kind of claims that, that, in fact, Moscow does not set the terms and, and Moscow is not where all power is concentrated. And I know it sounds so kind of obvious, like embarrassingly so. But if you look at our historiography, our historiography has really followed that narrative, right? It's been a historiography of victims and perpetrators of resistance and you know, and, and I think kind of what I was saying before about the state as the kind of organizing principle, I think, is, is, is one way that we've been led astray. So, you know, but I think there's a tension because on the one hand, I think I think when we say decolonizing Russian history, I think people can generally understand what that means. Um, even if we haven't yet worked out the particulars, I think there is a kind of a general uh, consensus around what that project might entail. Um, I don't know that Ukrainian history, I'm not sure what it means to decolonize Ukrainian history. Um, I think the fear that people, some people have, is that the project of decolonizing Russian history really creates nationalist histories, right? Um, so if you decolonize the field, are you then kind of moving into nationalist frameworks, because that's what we've had so far as as anti-colonial projects, as nationalist projects. Um, so the question is, OK, so if we decolonize the field, can we do that in a way that doesn't just revert back to nationalist narratives, right, of kind of resistance to oppression 
and so on. Um, you know, and I think it's important. I, and I'm again, I'm speaking kind of as through my own experience and intellectual um, soul searching in the last year is, um, you know, the the problem for me was not the kind of not seeing this um, as a as a problematic way of doing history. The problem for me was not just a moral or an ethical one. Um, it, it was actually an intellectual one that like this is not good history, right? <laughs> that in my job, I'm not doing my job as an historian um, well. And if I if I'm not, you know, if I have those kinds of blinders on, right? And so my in a way, there's a kind of I don't want to say shame, but you know, to some degree, shame and regret, right? That not only that, um, you know, you kind of find yourself perhaps complicit in some project you didn't know you were part of, but that you also, um, that you were kind of not doing good history, like just fundamentally, right? You thought you were, you thought you got the training, but that actually like you need to really um, shift some of the paradigms um, and some of the very definitions and structures around which you're making sense of this. So I think that, that, that kind of historians, it is it is going to fall on historians to do some of that heavy lifting of decolonizing. But I hope that it doesn't, you know, the easiest path would be to just nationalize. But I hope that we, we can do something beyond that. And I have to add in in terms of the the how like you started out with power being centered in Moscow. I mean, what we're dealing with here too is also the the problem of the archive, because the archive itself, the way it's structured, the way information flows through it, the way it's cataloged and categorized, is reflective of that centralized state power. I mean, the archive is the state record, right? Um. But the thing is, there there are so many things happening beyond archives. The archives, right? Exactly. And so, and so, exactly. in a way, but we we come from we come a field of we come from a place that there's an archival fetishism too, though. Well, right? so, so. Well, so we have this again. It's like it's our it's it's the field as currently constituted, right? Is structured around the state, and if it's structured around the state, that means we got to go to the archives, right? It's this positivist kind of archivally you know, re kind of trying to understand the inner logic of the state as a mechanism, as a kind of framework. Um, and, and everything that isn't happening within that framework, it, it's like, we, we don't even see it. Not even like, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, okay, if there's some violence involved, we might see it. Oh, look, there's resistance, right? But if there are people who live outside of those definitions, I think you could, you know, maybe see it like, um, in late Soviet historiography, we began to start seeing like, huh, there, there are people who live outside of this framework. Their, their world does not, you know, they don't live in the same Soviet Union as, you know, as the records show. Right. But I think that's always been the case. And, and we don't have as we don't pay enough attention to the multiple other you know, Ukraines that have been at work, um, and especially the transnational Ukraines, which have been kept up of, through generations of diasporas who are now re kind of reinvesting the physical kind of land of Ukraine with, you know, generations of, of, of understandings of Ukraine that don't necessarily coexist easily. It is going to be historians that are going to have to 
um, try to do this work, but it's going to take, it's going to have to be done in a way that is not, is, you know, that, that doesn't just take the easy way out. Well, Georgi, what, what is your, your, your opinion on all this? You know, Victoria has provided us with lots to chew on, but what, just to start this problem of Russia and its relationship to Ukraine. Honestly, I'm not very much uh, fancy about, uh, uh, about uh, decolonization issues, and uh, particularly when they applied to Ukraine. Uh, there are some, some, some old trends in historiography which hold that uh, Russia was civilized by Ukraine in the 18th century, for instance. So um, why should we talk about, why should we follow the pattern which was created by Russia by it? And then uh, responding in, in, the, in the, exactly in the terms which were imposed from outside. I think that's uh, also uh, probably the, the, the core issue here is to go uh, beyond the formal Ukraine is not Russia. So uh, is to stop um, to stop comparing uh, 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 Ukrainians to Russians to Russia and to uh, using Russia as a constitutive author. So. Um, we have, uh, I think that Ukraine has a rich history, transnational history, with very different civilizational uh, civilizational influences and impacts. So why should focus on Russia itself, which was, accordingly to some historians, colonized by Ukrainians, and uh, Russia itself has its internal colonization and its they have their own different people uh, in peoples in different regions, which also raise the decolonizing agenda. So let them deal with that. Uh, they try to do this. And, uh, probably part of the issue is that go uh, the, the Russian uh, irredentist nationalism. It goes uh, outside Russia. So they uh, they. Uh, deal with this um, somewhere else, not in Russia. Uh, but uh, I think that they would have some problems in the future, in the future, because they made changes to constitution where they put the, uh, the point about um, Russians, ethnic Russians, as a state-forming people. Uh, which I uh, probably would, uh, in the near future, would, uh, well, provide them with some uh, some issues. Anyway, uh, as, so Russia as a constitutive other should be um, put aside. And this is the shortest, the short card to the, what we uh, call a decolonization of, of Russia, of Ukrainian thinking and Ukrainian uh, humanities. Yeah, you know, in a way, it, I mean, I, I'm really struck by, I, I think you're the first person who I've heard bring this up, but that doesn't mean I've been paying close attention. So don't get me wrong here. But you brought up this issue of like, why do we why do we accept this, this power dynamic? We, we know they have influenced these two, if we take these two nations, Russia and Ukraine, they have the, the influence goes both ways. 
And so we shouldn't reproduce the, the power dynamic that's being put forward by Moscow, <laughs> frankly. Um, um, and we need to think about this in more transnational issues with, I mean, Victoria, you've brought up the diaspora, which is incredibly important. The other ethnic groups, both in Ukraine, but also ethnic groups in Russia, both of you brought those up. So this is, you know, it really does provide us, I think, an opportunity for re-mixing up the whole power dynamic in and of itself. Um, I don't know if there's any response to that, but uh, I, I see you nodding, Victoria. So <laughs> if you have anything to say. I'm just thinking of, you know, there's a kind of, I don't know if this was what Georgi was referring to, but there's this kind of emerging um, narrative in more kind of publicistic, kind of popular oriented, uh, public oriented, let's say, um, Ukraine history, um, which, um, you know, which really, um, you know, says things like, for example, okay, the Soviet army was, well, the Russian army has never won a war without Ukrainians in it. Or, um, you know, Ukrainians were by far you know, the biggest kind of um, constituency within the imperial framework, right? So from that perspective, you know, or that, you know, the, the, the all of the culture really was transferred from Ukraine to Russia. So like, you know, the, did we colonize the Muscovites, right? There's this, so, so there's, there's all sorts of really, I think they're great um, kind of disruptions, right? That shake things up, um, you know, but that's, a, that's a doing different work than the work of historians, I think. But I think they're, they're really healthy disruptions. And I think they also boost morale and, kind of, you know, le bring levity into, um, you know, into history, which is otherwise not a very um, light discipline. I uh, I would like to say that it's not just publicistic. It's not in here. It's uh, emerged uh, recently. Uh, I think that the book written by David Saunders from Newcast, that's uh, in English, uh, his English, uh, was written about a uh, quarter century ago. And it was, the, the title was The Ukrainian Impact on Russian Culture, uh, 18th Century. And uh, I think that first strings of this idea find them in uh, in works of Khrushchevsky, uh, not as a uh, nation builder, but as a academic historian. So it's uh, one hundred uh, years story, and uh, uh, now of course it is translated somehow into kind of uh, some kind of uh, uh, social networks. Uh, uh, speeches, but uh, generally it has a solid academic background. So uh, sure we can translate academic writings into, into uh, kind of uh, public history and prove it. Um, I just have one more question. I might have two questions, but I want to ask, because I'm debating whether to actually ask this, but I'm curious. So Victoria, you know, I, I was, you sent me your book proposal for this project. And the subtitle of the project is Ukraine and the Impossibility of History. And I'm, I'm really curious about this impossibility and what you meant by it. And, and is history impossible? Or is it just marketing? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, no, it's a fair question. And, you know, this wasn't a subtitle that was imposed on me. It was something that I, I went through different versions. But really what I was trying to get at... Um, you know, it, it, it's meant to be hyperbolic, but um, it's it's looking, trying to see through this microhistory, Ukraine as a space 
where multiple competing historical narratives, memory narratives, um, uh, uh, trauma narratives make a kind of um, unified historical project in, in some ways, in, you know, impo- I don't I don't actually think it's impossible, but it has made it, it has it has made it very difficult, but especially has revealed its necessity. So so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's history as we have done it has not been adequate to the task. That's what I um, what I really was trying to point to. And so we need to kind of think about what what stories are we telling as historians, because the stories that we've been telling are not adequate to um, to the world that we are moving into. And in a way, what I think makes Ukraine so important and so uh, um, so valuable is that increasingly the world looks more and more and more like Ukraine, not the other way. Like Ukraine shouldn't, be, in my view, shouldn't be trying to look like, you know, Poland, right? Let's say, um, but actually, you know, see that actually the world as a whole is is really becoming more and more. Um, structurally similar to Ukraine in facing national colonial projects that compete with each other, layers of victimhood, you know, long histories of grievances of populations who live side by side. And these are these are not specific problems to Ukraine, um, but Ukraine has the opportunity to, to to do something that can be of value beyond its own borders, I think. And and this this actually makes me wonder, Gilri, if if grand narratives, you know, we had this back in the 1990s. I remember in graduate school, this whole attack on the grand narrative, right? This postmodernist, poststructuralist, blah blah blah. But given given what Victoria said, what made me think is maybe this struggle for trying to construct a grand narrative is a a, a foolhardy one. Is it necessary? Even is is there something impossible about? the capital H history of X place. Well, I just, uh, well, I suggested that uh, when Victoria mentioned this impossibility of history for Ukraine, probably she meant a, um, a Harvard PhD uh, candidate who tries to seek a job in the North America that after defending thesis on history of Ukraine. Uh, but uh, in, in, if I put it in more serious terms, I, I, I think that we started this discussion uh, about 10 years ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, we wrote an article, my colleague, uh, Oleksiy Tolochko, uh, about the master narrative. And the, the reason for this was uh, we were discussions uh, in the Institute of History of Ukraine, because there was a project uh, which uh, could be funded by the state to write a 50-volume history of Ukraine in the next 10 years. And uh, so we were so afraid with this idea that uh, as a result of our internal discussions with the Institute, we wrote an article, uh, get what they say, when we tried to propose some other things uh, beyond uh, 50 volumes history of Ukrainian people. And uh, then... uh, uh, then the, everything failed because uh, war started in 2014, et cetera, et cetera. But it was not first attempt. It was first attempt. It was in 1993 when uh, 
Kravchuk proposed to write a history of Ukrainian people. He probably didn't know about the existence of 10 volumes of Khrushchevsky history of uh, Kiev, history of uh, Ukraine Rus. But, uh, you know, this uh, continuous attempt to, to, to write something, something big, something, uh, well, multi-volume history of Ukraine. Um, in fact, uh, there was another project, history, uh, Ukraine through uh, centuries, which was completed. It was 14 volumes uh, written by individual authors. And in fact, it was history of Ukraine's. Uh, in plural, because every author wrote uh, their own uh, version of uh, the history of Ukraine in a certain period of time. So that was probably the most successful uh, project because uh, they were not, of course, they, they, the initiators of this idea tried to uh, somehow to unite all authors by the idea Ukraine through centuries. So millennial history of Ukraine, but in fact, it was history of Ukraine. And that was a great project. And I think that uh, it was done uh, uh, properly. So now uh, we see the trend, of course, of course, because of external threat, uh, there will be again uh, attempts to create a kind of big narrative, mastery narrative. But I hope that this time, uh, people would be uh, wise enough to write this as a transnational, multinational history. Well, some Western academics like Magochi uh, did this. Uh, they wrote the, the, well, he has a huge volume of Ukraine, Ukraine history as a multinational narrative. And Andreas Kapiler, uh, sometime in the past, proposed uh, transnational history. So we have a lot of ideas and uh, we're not alone, and uh, probably we're under more more favorable circumstances, something will come would come out, uh, and it will be not the repetition of what Grushevsky wrote 100 years ago. Conceptually, it will be something different. I just I just wanted to say, you know, in a way, the 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 stories that Georgi just kind of said about the 50-volume history and the fact that the 14 volumes had to be, really was a pluralistic and a, Ukraine's plural, you know, that's kind of really what I was also trying to get at is, is, is that, you know, there, there are many Ukraines at, um, that exist. And I guess the question methodologically, and I, I you know, this is really an open-ended question is, is also for Georgi because you know, he really works with these categories of nation and state um, very closely. But, you know, is it possible to write a history of Ukraine that isn't um, structured around the category of either state or nation, um, but is looking, you know, at, at the place, right? Um, at, 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 at Ukraine as a space where things have happened um, and that there's something that gives that space coherence um, and many things that give that space coherence. Um, and there's a reason why it has been multi-ethnic and multi-confessional and all of that. And we kind of intuitively understand that about Ukraine, but in a way we have, that has typically been used to explain why Ukraine isn't kind of part of big history with a capital H right? Because it's a place where lots of things are happening at the same time. And we don't, you know, kind of, we can't 
fit them together. But um, but, you know, the the kind of states, nations, I, I, I do wonder about whether we can continue to rely on these categories um, to write history uh, and whether um, we can kind of move methodologically out of those frameworks um, into something different. Yeah, well, I think that there is a lot of options uh, to write history of Ukraine beyond nations and states. Uh, nation-state paradigm, or for instance, you can write history of Ukraine as a history of interaction between uh, the city and the and the village, capital C, capital V, or you can write a big gender history of Ukraine that uh, represented this way, or you can write a cultural history or world. So what I like is uh, what uh, what Victoria proposed. It's a microhistory. So it will be uh, you can write a, a history of one village uh, for a couple of centuries, and then you will have uh, another Carlo Ginzburg bestseller. So uh, so that's uh, uh, that's you know people were so so much excited about. Uh, about Marcus uh, novel about hundred years of uh, I don't remember how it's in English uh, hundred years of I did not just what is it solitude hundred one hundred years of solitude solitude yes uh, yeah so solitude yes uh, so uh, and uh, uh, but we have uh, for instance we have Liberty uh, the uh, by Vasily Zemlak, and this is exactly yeah. it's it's Marcus only in Ukraine, and nobody knows about this. So we have a we have some, we have high quality and uh, high quality things in every in every field of culture, and uh, we just not very much masterful in promoting them. Uh, so um, and in Ukraine we have a quite well developed historiography. Of course, it's not a uh, these people are not in the uh, public trend, I would say, but uh, they are able, capable of writing uh, excellent uh, narrative, transnational, multicultural, whatever. Uh, there was an idea to organize a uh, international um, group of uh, history uh, specialists to write this kind of history, uh, kind of master narrative, or a number of uh, narratives which would uh, combine it okay, uh, under some idea. Uh, but uh, still now under these circumstances it is of course impossible and probably in this case Victoria is right, the history is impossible. Uh, 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 probably we should look for the next 10 years and then we'll see this. Well, this is, a, this is I, I... I love ending on a positive note, um, and because I don't, I don't know this stuff. This is why I do events about it. And there seems to be from both what both of you have said, there's a lot of potential for the future that is quite bright, which is which is wonderful to hear. Um, so, is there anything else that either of you like to say that you didn't get a chance to say or clarify before we call it a day? N not, I don't have anything to say. I just want to say that I there were this conversation has, has left a lot of things for me to think about. And I really appreciate being in conversation with you and Georgi. Um, and, you know, I do hope 
uh, to see an international collaborative project um, and that gives a master narrative of some kind, Ukraine, be sooner rather than later, because that will mean that we are beyond the time of troubles we're in now. Um, but um, no, I mean, I think that there there are a lot of questions and a lot of um, a lot of projects that have been identified as a course of this conversation, which I think is regenerative. That was Victoria Smolkina and Georgi Kasyanov. Victoria Smolkina is an associate professor of history at Wesleyan University, where she researches religion, atheism, and cosmism in Russia, Ukraine, and the Soviet Union. She's the author of A Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism, published by Princeton University Press. I highly recommend you check out my interview with her from a few years ago. And she's currently working on two projects, The Wall of Memory, Ukraine and the Impossibility of History, which you heard about in this interview, and The World of Tomorrow, Communism, Cosmism, and the Fate of Utopia. Georgi Kasyanov runs the Laboratory of International Memory Studies at the Mary Curie Sklodowska University in Lublin, Poland. He's the author, co-author, and co-editor of more than 20 books on the history of Ukraine in the 19th and 20th centuries. And his most recent book is Memory Crash, Politics of History in and Around Ukraine, the 1980s to 2010s, published by Central European University Press. So, as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. And the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this interview or enjoy the podcast in general, please take a moment to help us out and share it on social media and tell your friends to listen. Um, the publicity really, really helps spread the word. You can also drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at srbpodcast.org to let me know what you think. I've gotten some good messages and some good feedback from people. And as always, I would love to have your support. The SRB Podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of listeners and other educational institutions to keep it completely free of paid advertising for listeners, free of paywalls and all, all those other obstacles that get in the way of the free flow of information. So please help me keep it that way. Uh, go to srbpodcast.org and join the table of ranks. Until next time, bye. Jesus, Trillbian Tree. in the gas tank and sand in the Vaseline buck 65 in foreign currencies just in case in foreign emergencies I keep double copy single pairs of plastic explosive if I need them for signal flares gosh darn it I'm the intensifying image of your last hope incarnate 5% fairy tale 95% of me is hard work and I rarely fail even though I'm very pale I wear a suit of armor and in the summertime I ride my bike and get a farmer's tan 41.30 and I'm okay for hours backstage at the showcase I want bouquets of flowers a large order of fries and I'm sort of surprised because the same thing happened in the Lord of the Flies when Piggy lost his glasses and got crushed by a boulder thanks you know and even though I'm touched I am older 47,516 all I need's a flexed wrist stupid DJs would give their right arm to be ambidextrous the path of radical thought is mathematical I subtract distractions in addition to inhibitions now come on everybody click your heels and do the Dorothy 
Don't go looking for trees through the forest real Calmly and gladly tell your mommy and daddy That their little baby girl is part of an experiment I never meant to scare anyone I've been honest, I've been nice But I feel like I'm skating on thin ice And my skates need sharpening I got hardwood floors But I cover them up with some nice shag carpeting I pulled whole lots of dollars out of whole lots of pockets Life is still just a big old bowl of cherries I love berries to chew on and any kind of fruit juice I used to always either have a bleeding nose or loose tooth that was in the 70s, I'll tell you ladies and gentlemen That apathy in the 90s replaced the 80s adrenaline These be the things that the world says to censor and it'll snap